Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to talk about your pets on the program today. The phone lines are open. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Whether you love a dog, a cat, a rabbit, armadillo, or a kikajou, we're going to talk about one of those on the program today. Any other animal you love, we'd love to hear about him or her. And specifically, if you have a question, we have with us a veterinarian, Dr. James Israelson from Mountain View Veterinary Health Center with us. And uh, we have a range of topics to talk about, but especially we want to hear about your uh, pet, your question. 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us uh, by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Utah Public Radio Facebook page is another place. And we'd love uh, for you to post a picture of your pet with a brief uh, comment. You can see a... a uh, lady uh, sitting on a fence uh, looking at her horses on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page right there. Dr. James Israelson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I, I made reference to, um, his name is Phineas, the kinkajou. Uh, you were a part of a, a veterinarian dental team that, that worked on, on him. First of all, kinkajou, I hadn't even heard the word until you, you brought it up this morning before the program. Yeah, to to be frank, I probably had to look it up too when he first uh, appeared on our radar. Uh, so Phineas was an interesting story. He was um, obtained by Willow Park from a private owner in Idaho, along with a female that uh, wasn't very healthy. And uh, Phineas um, had some problems. He had started getting aggressive, and it appears to us that his canine teeth had been shortened, causing him to get some dental infections. Uh, Kinkajou is a South American uh, rodent that are, they're very interesting. One of their closer relatives is elephants. Um, really? So they have uh, interesting little feet and uh, an interesting nose. They look a bit like a, a ferret, but not. So, so yeah, we had the opportunity to uh, enlist the help of some local a dentist and endodontist and uh, do some work on his teeth. He's feeling much better. Including a root canal. Root canals? Or? Yes. Uh, so John Israelson is my brother. He's a dentist here in town. And uh, Dr. Steve Larson is an endodontist. And uh, Dr. Pappenfuss, our associate veterinarian, had done most of the work on Phineas. Uh, she put together an anesthetic protocol, and we managed the anesthesia, and the dentist and the endodontist did all the hard work. By the way, you can go to hjnews.com, the website of the Logan Herald Journal, the, the uh, paper in Cache Valley, um, and see some very cute pictures of Phineas, um, uh, looking like he's out with with some medical gear uh, coming in and out of his out of his mouth, uh, doing work on on Phineas the Kinkajou. Also, uh, in today's paper, the Herald Journal. Uh, there's a new Canada lynx at the Willow Park Zoo in, in Logan, and your clinic has done some work. Yes, uh, so they, they have two lynx, uh, and uh, again, Dr. Pappenfuss has done most of the work on them. Um, Troy Cooper, the director at the zoo, is doing a nice job of uh, bringing in new exhibits, and he's worked with university students in preparing the exhibit space for these lynx. Um, they already had two bobcats, and we have taken care of them over the years, including cleaning teeth and blood tests and vaccinations. The lynx came in for x-rays 
and updating vaccines and just general health checkups, as I recall. So, yeah, it's always a little bit interesting at our clinic, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are the exotic, and uh, we'd love to hear about your exotic pet if if, if you have one, or or if it's your dog or cat, the the companion that you love. We'd love to hear about him or her, and uh, specific questions are welcome at one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. So, Doctor Israelson, what are, what are you seeing this time of year? What uh, what advice can we give? That's a good question. Um, We're seeing a few different things just because the weather has gotten nicer, our animals are out and about, um, certainly more active. One of the things that is cropping up a lot this time of year, and it does every spring, uh, is a cruciate ligament injury in dogs. In people, that's referred to as the ACL. You've probably heard of Mm -hmm. ACL injury in football players. The reality is a lot of ACL injury happens to the weekend warrior who decides to get off the couch and go play basketball for three hours. And the same is is true of dogs. In dogs, that ligament is referred to as the cranial cruciate ligament, uh, CCL. And uh, its job is to support the knee. And when we get these out-of-shape dogs that have visions of past glories and get out and overdo, then we see some real injury. Um, That procedure with dogs, as with people, is typically best managed surgically. And so we have several different options of surgically addressing those. Recently, at our hospital, we've just become capable of doing uh, one of the newest treatments for cranial cruciate ligament injury. It's called a tibial tuberosity advancement, TTA. And uh, it involves lots of power tools and carpentry, which I enjoy. We go in, we cut the bone, we move things around and uh, put in some titanium implants. And uh, those dogs hopefully are going to return to athletic performance pretty quickly. So this is caused by the animal weekend warrior getting off the couches. So how best to prevent this? Uh, Ease into it? Certainly ease into it and high impact uh, uh, exercise like frisbee or retrieving. We see this injury most when we get muscle fatigue and the muscles are providing some uh, extra support to the knee. When those muscles fatigue, that dog or person is much more dependent on the ligaments inside the knee. And so definitely slowly working your dog in uh, to being fully fit is important. Really the symptoms that people would see would be the dog that is running around, goes hiking on the trail, and comes back completely not weight-bearing on the leg. Occasionally someone is close enough, they'll hear the pop. Mm. You hear about people hearing a pop in their knee and and having torn it. Most of the time we don't witness the injury, uh, but the dog will come back acutely non-weight-bearing, holding the leg up. And, you know, dogs will step on things or have other injuries that may cause that, but that doesn't last very long. With a CCL injury, those dogs the next day are still not wanting to use the leg, and the next week probably not much better. Mm. So certainly at, at that juncture, it's time to get the veterinarian involved and have that leg examined Um and the, it is one of these things that the sooner we are able to intervene in these, the less permanent damage is done in the knee. Mm-hmm. So definitely worth having checked out if those signs occur. This is mostly dogs. I, I could I just intuit that the, it's not going to bother cats. 
it can occur in cats, um, but the ratio is probably one to a hundred. For every hundred canine cruciate ligament injuries I repair, I might I might repair mm-hmm. one cat. Gotcha. I do know some cats who I, I think probably could stand to lose some weight before they get out and uh, and really are active. That that is true, and in fact, uh, most cats that I see could stand to lose some weight. Uh, some of my own included. Yeah. Nutrition is is difficult in cats, especially if they're indoor. Um, to really know how many calories they should be taking in. What's a good rule of thumb? What, uh, uh, some, you know, the cats I'm talking about, you just look at them and, you know, just like with myself, for example, uh, I can see I'm overweight. You, you, know. you may have seen some of these cats that have a little paunch that hangs down between their hind legs, yeah. and when they walk, it swings back and forth. If you're seeing that, it's a pretty good guess that your cat is heavy. Um I had a cat named DJ long ago who was, uh, we used to call him an invertebrate cat because he had enough of a paunch he could just envelop anything he, he lay down on. But uh, feeling for that extra abdominal fat is probably key. Yeah. Um, free feeding cats, some cats can be free fed. Many cats really should be limit fed. So knowing how much your cat is eating is really the first step to figuring out are you feeding them too mm, much? Mm. I get, you just have to do that by trial and error, perhaps, to, to know if your cat can be free fed. Or Most not, foods will have a starting point on the bag as a recommendation, but it really is true that that is purely a, to give you a general idea. Um, and then working, perhaps, with your veterinarian to gauge how much should my cat really weigh. Mm. We have a question. This is from uh, on email. This is uh, Gary and Logan. Uh, tips and advice for owning small exotic birds in our Utah climate. He says they can live for 20-plus years, but their small size can make them susceptible to our cold, dry climate. Are there any small birds that are better than others for Utah pet owners? I may have to defer on that one, Gary. Dr. Shirsta Pappenfuss is our, uh, our doctor that works with us. She's our associate doctor and tends to do most of the work with Willow Park Zoo along with Dr. Hillegas, my wife. I know that the the birds that are a little more common in our areas do very well. So finches, a zebra finch isn't a local finch, but zebra finches do very, very well. In, in general, when you talk about um, owning exotic birds, the problems that we encounter, nutrition is a big one. Uh, as I was coming out of veterinary school many years ago, uh, most of the diets that were available for pet birds were seed-based, so almost purely seeds. And of course, birds like children really appreciate the fatty items and the high sugar items. And so we would encounter birds that were extremely overweight. They were picking out all the sunflower seeds and leaving the nutritive nuggets behind uh, so one thing from a from a general uh, ownership standpoint that I would recommend is, if you're at all able, make sure those birds are getting a pelleted diet as the majority of their intake, and and then seeds and fruit and those things as as treats are important. Mm. Uh, and for more advice, I guess you could call up your office and talk to yes, either Doctor Hillegas or Doctor Pappenfuss would be happy to consult with you on that. And uh, we're talking with Dr. James Israelson uh, with the Mountain View Veterinary Health Center. We are uh, fielding your uh, pet questions. Your animal companion that you uh, love so much, uh, we'd love for you to post a picture 
or a comment on our Facebook page and uh, get us your question uh, by two main methods. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. And you can reach us by email, as Gary did, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. We're going to get into uh, talking uh, a little bit more about dental health. As often happens, Dr. Israelson, uh, I have questions occasioned by uh, television commercials that I've seen. There's one with a chew toy that's supposed to help with dental health. Sure, we'll yeah. get to that following a break. Also, a chiropractic for animals. Dr. Israelson is uh, president of the American Veterinary Chiropractic Association, works with horses and smaller animals as well with uh, chiropractic. Those questions and your question as well following the break. Who says Sting Fit can't be fun? Join us for the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health for great tips on healthy living, like this recipe for Thai Summer Rolls. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 and a Tuesday morning at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building small precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Dr. James Israelson. He's a veterinarian with Mountain View Veterinary Health Center in Cache Valley, and he is able to answer your pet question. We'd love for you to just call and brag on your pet animal that you uh, love. Post a picture on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page, and your question, of course, is welcome at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so the uh, television commercial I made reference to before the break, Dr. Israelson, um, they're selling this. I can't. I don't know whether it's a, a you know, comestible or whether it's a chew toy. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's 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 got uh, ridges and and such. Sure. Your dog apparently will love it, and it'll help his uh, dental health because he'll be enjoying the flavor, and uh, and and this mechanism will be massaging his gums or whatever. So that brings to mind uh, dental health. What's what's best with with keeping your uh, your animal's uh, dental health up? You know, dental health is something that has really come to the forefront in veterinary medicine. As we have gotten better at keeping our animals alive longer, we tend to see a lot more dental disease where, you know, previously the seven-year-old farm dog was a pretty old dog, may not have had a chance to develop dental disease. We commonly see dogs in their mid to late teens and cats. And um, so when one looks at the influences on life expectancy in older animals, dental health is very high on that list. Uh, There's a strong correlation between dental disease and other types of organ disease, heart disease, kidney disease, liver disease, um, and just general uh, ill effects on health. So when we talk about dental health and what can one do to best maintain your pet's mouth, um, we talk about good, better, and best. 
So the, the chew toy that you're referencing, there are a lot of them out there. Uh, everything ranging from the good old knotted multi-strand nylon bone to specifically designed dental chews that have bumps and ridges and encourage dogs to chew. Those are all uh, methods of mechanical cleaning. So anything that we can get a dog to chew that is healthy for them can be helpful in scraping those teeth and cleaning them off. Science Diet makes a food called TD, stands for Tooth Diet. We like to joke that Science Diet feels the need to make a food for every letter in the alphabet. And TD, they had to come up with something for T, so they have Tooth Diet. <laughs> tooth Diet is an interesting one. It is a large kibble that is puffed, and it has sort of interlocking vegetable fibers on it. And as that tooth enters the kibble, the kibble holds together just a little longer before it shatters, and it scrapes the tooth. There's good studies that show that that's helpful. We make that for both cats and dogs. Uh, when we talk good, we talk some of the over-the-counter chews, so the dental bones, nyla bones, things like that, that provide some mechanical cleaning. Better is something that we're actually probably putting in our pet's mouth in an attempt to keep their teeth healthy. Um, better would be examples of, of a better would be an, an oral rinse. There are some healthy antiseptic oral rinses one can put in one's dog or cat's mouth. Um, there is a dental sealant that one can apply weekly to your pet's teeth. It doesn't require the brushing that one might do every day, but it's still going to help knock down the, the bacteria in the mouth. One that I am very fond of is an enzyme-treated rawhide chew. When we look at rawhides in general, uh, one caution I would give people is be careful where they are sourced. We see are seeing a lot of uh, rawhides that are coming from China. That makes me nervous uh, just because of the lack of oversight for chemicals and potential disease, uh, salmonella-type contamination, those things. So be sure that if you're getting rawhide chews, those are coming from a state or a country that really relies on their beef industry, like Brazil, Argentina, the United States, because in order to have a successful beef industry, they have to have good controls on that. Mm -hmm. um, so rawhide chews would fit in the good category. The better category is a treated rawhide chew, which is this CET chew I was referencing. CET chews are neat. They're a, a rawhide strip, come in different sizes for different dogs. They're treated with enzymes. So as the dog chews, uh, these enzymes are released in the mouth and they help digest away the soft plaque forming bacteria. And uh, certainly for those of us that don't have the time to brush our pet's teeth every day, CET chews can be quite helpful. They do make one for cats that's a puffed dehydrated fish. And if your cat likes fish, that may be helpful as well. When we talk best, the veterinary dentists tell us we should all brush our dog's teeth every day. And uh, I, to be honest with you, I can count on, on one hand probably my clients that are able to do that every single day. However, even brushing uh, occasionally is going to help to some extent. How do you get your, I guess, is training? You need to train your dog to be able to do that? Very much so. And there are dogs that no matter how hard you try, you may not successfully get them to accept it. But the keys are make sure you're using a pet-friendly toothpaste. And so when you look at pet toothpaste, there's the mint flavor, and then there is the poultry flavor, which do we think our pets would prefer? Mint is probably for us. Mm -hmm. 
poultry is probably something they would be more likely to accept. So um, it's a gradual introduction. I tend to use the toothpaste as a treat initially, make sure they like the taste, put a little on my finger, let them lick it off for a few days. Then I may put some on my finger and put my finger in their mouth and rub it along their teeth to get them used to that feel. Then transition to a brush, let them chew or lick it off of the brush. I think one mistake people make is they go they go buy a pet toothbrush and toothpaste and they say, I'm going to brush my pet's teeth today. And they sit on fluffy and they lift the lip <laughs> and they scrub away and that might happen once, but the next time that toothbrush comes out, fluffy's nowhere in sight. So gradual yeah. introduction is really the key. Yeah. What about cats? Cats can be finicky. I do have, believe it or not, several clients in my practice that are able to brush their cat's teeth. And they do make cat-specific toothbrushes, and I think they make a tuna-flavored toothpaste. Um, Cats are more difficult. They have different types of dental disease than dogs. Dogs uh, really deal mostly with gingivitis and buildup of tartar on, on their teeth, causing the soft tissue inflammation in cats. We see some interesting things. We'll get cats that will get gingivitis and periodontal disease with very little buildup on their teeth. Uh, That's probably bacterial-related. Cats will develop uh, a a lesion called an odontoclastic resorptive lesion, which is just a fancy way of saying it acts like a cavity. However, in the early 80s, there was a lot of work done on drilling those out and filling them as one would fill a cavity. It doesn't work. They still reabsorb under that filling. And so the, the key with cats is really keeping their mouths clean, um, paying very close attention to inflammation, even if we don't see a lot of buildup on the teeth. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, when we get those resorptive lesions in the tooth, it commonly results in eroding into the nerve, and then the cat has a painful mouth, which makes them even less amenable to, to tooth brushing. So that's very much a place where your veterinarian can help you. We are uh, talking with Dr. James Israel, said have just joined us. We're talking about, uh, hopefully, about your pet. Uh, if you have a uh, question about uh, your animal, we would uh, love to have you uh, call that in or email it in. And here's how you reach us, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We can handle your uh, pet behavior question as well. If you're having trouble uh, training uh, your pet, uh, Dr. Israelson can handle that as well. The number is 1-800-826-1495. Dr. Israelson, I'm interested in this idea of uh, chiropractic for animals, something I hadn't uh, thought about until I was reading your biography on your website, which is mtnviewvet.com. Mountain View uh, Veterinary Health Center. Dr. James Israelson is our guest for another uh, 20 minutes or so. Uh, So you do chiropractic for performance horses, for smaller animals, and in fact, you were telling me you're the the current president of the American Veterinary Chiropractic Association. I am. That's that's been a long, strange journey to get me to that point. Um, I think I just didn't keep my head down enough when the nominations were coming around, but... uh, yeah, if, if you think about it, uh, if, if you have experienced chiropractic on yourself, uh, the principle is the same with pets. Uh, if chiropractic helps humans, it really should help pets. One of the things that led me to that um, was several years after we purchased Mountain View in the late 90s, uh, 
I would encounter horses with a sore back, particularly horses, that did not respond to any of the treatments that I had learned in veterinary school. And there was a doctor in Richmond at that time, a veterinarian who had trained in animal chiropractic and was adjusting horses. He has since moved, but uh, I would send these horses to him, and by golly, most of them would improve with his treatments. And so it started to make sense to me that this is something I need to get educated on. And uh, did some research and discovered the AVCA, the American Veterinary Chiropractic Association. The AVCA is an interesting organization. It's composed of both veterinarians and human chiropractors that have received additional training to enable them to adjust animals. And uh, it is something I would caution people about. There are those out there who have less training than that that adjust animals, and it's a little difficult to be sure that they are doing a thorough adjustment. So, yes, animal chiropractic is is. I think a rapidly expanding profession for sure. And the, is this mostly done for say working animals, you know, show horses, it's service probably, animals? What? To... Yes, it's probably easiest to determine if your animal needs an adjustment. If it's an animal that does something for a living besides getting up from the couch to the food bowl and back, <laughs> right? Um, so <laughs> many of the horses that I do are performance animals. Uh, if you think about the speed events, so barrel racing, uh, I do a lot of hunter jumper, so stadium jumping, these horses that are doing Grand Prix, you know, six foot jumps, uh, it's very obvious if they are off their game. Uh, if a barrel horse is a few tenths of a second slower or faster, that's the difference between first and tenth. And so it's nice to be doing that in, in animals that do uh, timed events, because it's very easy to see the improvement after an adjustment. Some of the other work that I do, I do quite a bit in agility uh, dogs. We adjust a fair number of agility dogs. And I work on police dogs as well. I've adjusted uh, police dogs from uh, Brigham City and from Evanston and places in between. Police dogs are an interesting study in chiropractic. Those dogs, when they come in, they're wound pretty tightly, and they're not necessarily amenable to having a stranger come up and start pushing and pulling on them. And yet it, it has universally been the case that when we find the areas of discomfort and are able to adjust them, uh, pretty soon I'm their best friend. And the next time they come in, they're wagging when they hit the door. Of course, it's not limited just to performance animals. Many of my canine patients particularly, and a few feline patients, are the old arthritic animal that is already receiving anti-inflammatories, joint supplement, weight control, perhaps even acupuncture, which is something that Dr. Hillegas at our practice offers. And chiropractic is, by in my hands, certainly not a replacement for those other modalities, but it is additive. When I'm working on the old arthritic dog that's on you know, significant levels of anti-inflammatories, and we can reduce those anti-inflammatories by 50% through the use of chiropractic, that's where it's really rewarding. And we really make their later years a lot more comfortable. Hmm. I'm trying to wrap my mind around how you would how you adjust a horse. You well, a smaller animal, you can, you can push and pry, you know, the horse is bigger than you, Certainly yes. don't want to get around back. Uh, you know, what, what, how do you work on a horse? Well, I tell people the hardest part of adjusting a horse is getting them to lie down on the adjusting table. 
and I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, I, I believed you. I was I was picturing the horse, and I was thinking, well, well that's smart. But, but you're, you know, there you're was, joking. Okay. There was a farrier at one point that uh, said that if people could train their horses to lie down for him, he would trim their horse's yeah. feet for free. And some people <laughs> took him up on that. I probably, if you could get your horse to lie down for me, I might give you a discount on the adjustment. Well, there you go. There you go. So adjusting a horse is very different. If, if you've been to a chiropractor, a lot of the adjustments that human chiropractors do We'll adjust more than one vertebra at a time. If we, if we twist, you know, two, three, four vertebra will release and um, let go. In a horse, because of their size, it's all about mechanical advantage. So I have some adjusting bales that are a big styrofoam block with a handle that allow me to get up above that horse. And then we adjust one vertebral segment at a time. And so I tell people, you know, I'm not adjusting your whole horse. I'm only adjusting these two vertebrae, and I'm bigger than those two vertebrae. And mm -hmm. so it really is a function of getting the horse to relax and allow me to make that adjustment. And then one vertebra at a time, all the way down each side. And, um, you know, horses, again, are a little bit like those working dogs. The first time you do that to them, they're pretty leery of the adjustment for about three minutes. And once we get that first spot adjusted and they feel that release and they get that endorphin release, they, um, they're pretty accepting of it. Hmm. Now, I got this picture of Mr. Ed uh, lying on your table, and uh, uh, that's probably what I'll take from this program. We'd probably have a good yeah, conversation, yeah, wouldn't we? <laughs> probably would. It would be a little easier. Mr. Ed could tell you where to exactly, where, where, yes. actually, where actually to push and prod. We have uh, Dr. James Israelson with us from Mountain View Veterinary Health Center, uh, able to answer your questions, whether it's behavior adjustment or health. We've been talking a lot about dental health. We've talked about chiropractic. And uh, Dr. James Israelson is uh, president of the American Veterinary Chiropractic Association. We're able to handle your question at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. I wanted to ask you about the differences between your practice in Oregon. You started out in Oregon, I think. Yes. Uh, and this was a, and here, and you say up, up there was, it was a mixed practice. Tell me what that means. So, so my first practice right out of veterinary school was in a little town called Rainier, Oregon, which is halfway between Portland and the coast down the Columbia River. And our practice, uh, Valley Veterinary Clinic was the name of it. And it was owned by a Dr. Julie Plummer. She was one of the first female graduates from Colorado State Veterinary School. And at that time, in the mid-60s, uh, women in veterinary medicine were not looked on very fondly. And so she had to be quite a tough lady. And uh, I can't think of a better place I could have started. She had so much experience, and she had built this practice from the ground up, six doctor practice, and our practice was very diverse. We did everything from exotic cats like lynx and bobcats uh, all the way to uh, your standard dog and cat practice. Because of where we were, we were one of the few mixed animal practices, meaning we would do basically anything that came in the door. We were one of the few that within several hours in any direction. And so it was common to go on a farm call and be gone all day gave me a lot of chance to drive around the beautiful Pacific Northwest, which was enjoyable. Yeah, not a bad thing. You have, we were talking before we went on the air, you have, I think, treated llamas? 
Alpacas? I do have an enjoyment of camelid medicine, you bet. Uh, tell me, and these things go in waves. I think at a certain point, llamas are very popular. That's maybe faded. Yes. Alpacas, um, and these these are for, you know, if you're an outfitter, I suppose, and yeah. uses pack animals, but also, uh, I suppose, pets and just to, just to have. It's, it is it is true that, uh, especially I think the llama industry, we came into practice towards perhaps the end of the big surge in the llama industry in, in the States. Llamas were initially, uh, you know, imported for uh, fiber and to use as pack animals. Of course, in South America, they're also a meat animal. They do have large drumsticks. But uh, llamas kind of came and went. We still see llamas. They're used very commonly now as pack animals. They can carry a pretty good amount of weight. They're quite environmentally friendly on the trail. They have pads instead of hooves. Uh, on the majority of their foot, and uh, but they can be a little stubborn and reticent to go down the trail, so it does take some work. Uh, certainly the most experience that I have had has been with alpacas, and alpacas are a slightly different creature. They're a little bit smaller, perhaps a little cuter, maybe a little fluffier, and the alpaca industry is very much focused on producing fiber, and the alpaca world has done a little better job at creating a market for their products. So you will see commonly alpaca wool socks, which, by the way, are the warmest sock you can wear in the winter, and alpaca gloves and scarf and sweaters. So there are still quite active alpaca shows uh, around the country. The alpaca industry took a hit, as did everything with the recession. But we are seeing those come back, and we do a fair amount of alpaca medicine One thing people perhaps don't realize when they get into camelids in general, alpacas or llamas, is that they do require a little bit of specialized care. You can't treat them like a small cow uh, or a small horse. And so it it does behoove you to really get educated uh, about those animals. Probably the big things we see with them as far as health problems that people just didn't realize, when they have that kind of fiber and wool on them, it's, I guess, technically fiber, but it's very difficult to tell if they're heavy or thin unless you're putting hands on them. So we always encourage people to feel your alpacas. Make sure you know what a heavy alpaca feels like as compared to a thin one. Pretty common for us to see parasitism as a big problem in weight. and um, they, But they are interesting. I do enjoy working with them. It's I'm always fascinated with the people who come to love a particular species or... Uh, and I'm thinking of years ago, I did a report out in the Uona Basin, talked with an outfitter, took people up in the wilderness. And uh, unbidden, but very interesting, he he gave me 30, maybe 45 minutes on mules. Oh, yes. And why mules are so much better than horses and sure-footed and, and uh, very interesting. And And it is true. I'm told that if one once rides a mule, it might be hard to go back to horses. They're certainly sure-footed. Uh, again, you can't treat a mule like a small horse personality-wise. But we see that. Uh, I think we're all that way, that we find something we like and and really become passionate about it. I have people that are passionate about their tortoises or passionate about their their large snakes. And certainly uh, we're, we're happy to see nearly everything there. I do tell people, if you bring me a sick tarantula, 
I may have a little trouble accomplishing that treatment for you. <laughs> but just about anything else, I guess you Just you'd about anything else, yes. Yeah. I have a I'm thinking of a friend who who loves tarantulas. She she has tarantulas in her in her home and and she'll bring them out for you. And it, it makes you nervous, but uh, Yes, I may I may have a little bit of arachnophobia yeah. there. I would uh, like to look at them from a distance. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I've had a tarantula c- crawling on my arm. Uh, that's just because my friend brought it out and assured me that, that it was it was safe and i think i was trying to show that i was macho i guess i you know prove my manhood thereby but i was scared the whole time oh yes um we are uh, talking about all matter of animals and uh, we'd love to answer your uh, pet question dr james israelson is uh, with me for another uh, about 10 or 15 minutes your question is welcome to 1-800-826-1495 or you can uh, join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Another break. When we come back, we have a question about, uh, about a couple of cats, some animal behavior uh, question for you, Dr. Israelson, and hopefully yours as well. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Beginning in May, tune into Utah Public Radio during Morning Edition for Hidden Kitchens, a series on the food, folklore, and culture that creates community around the world, from Sicilian farms to the Australian outback. From the Kitchen Sisters production team, Tuesday mornings in May on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio proudly acknowledges our graduating interns, Eric Jungblood, Taylor Halverson, Brianna Bodley, Ali Snow, and Justin Bagshaw, and our program director, Tom Williams, graduating with a Master of Business Administration from the USU Huntsman School of Business. We would also like to acknowledge Katie Swain for receiving the Chass Student of the Year Award. Congratulations, UPR staff members, on your academic achievements at Utah State University. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about your pets on the program today with Dr. James Israelson, veterinarian with Mountain View Veterinary Health Center in Cache Valley. And your question is welcome, whether you have a tarantula or a llama or alpaca or, or, or a dog or cat. Uh, you mentioned, Dr. Israelson, before the break, of snakes, tortoises, all, all manner of animals, I suppose, people bring in. We do. We, you know, we used to see a lot of hedgehogs, and I, I don't get to see very many hedgehogs anymore, which is, that's a little bit like examining a pincushion anyway, but uh, we do. We see a, a smattering of all different sorts of creatures. We have uh, done a fair amount of work for PetSmart in the past with their exotic animals, and um, Dr. Pappenfuss and Hillegas do much of that. Um, but, uh, you know, again, people get really passionate about their pets and will see respiratory infections in snakes or shedding problems in snakes or egg problems in, in a tortoise. And um, it's, it's always an interesting day at the mm-hmm. hospital. That's a broad range of things you have to work with, uh, knowledge base you have to have as a veterinarian. Uh, you know, it is, it is true and it's not true. We... We certainly learn that a lot of medicine translates between species. And mm. so rather than having to learn everything about every species, you learn the things that are different between a reptile and a mammal mm. and between 
you know, a dog and a kinkajou. And as long as one is aware of those things, you can certainly uh, educate yourself pretty well. And, of course, uh, animal behavior is a big part of it, I'm sure. Uh, getting animals to get along with each other, getting them to get along with us, us with them. Uh, and th- this next question has to do with that. This is from uh, Shalane. She says, Hi, this program could not be a better timing for me. Recently, my dear Uncle Johnny passed away. I adopted his sweet little kitty. That is her actual name, Kitty. He adopted her when she was only days old. She's now between 12 and 14 years old and is in good health. She was an only kitty and was very spoiled by my uncle and well taken care of. I have a cat named Dorian. We have had him for over four years. He was a stray cat and was at one time used to being around other outdoor cats. A lot of friends suggested getting a playmate for Dorian as he is home alone most of the time and is a, and is an indoor cat now. So when my family needed someone to take care, a good care of my uncle's sweet kitty, I was more than happy to bring her into our home. Well, yesterday was her first day with us, and it was definitely a sleepless night for me. The only hiss and growl, which I have only heard Dorian hiss one time at the vet's office. Now my cat cannot stand me and hisses when I try to pick him up. Kitty is very much a people cat and cuddles up to me. I've separated Kitty into a room alone so she can get used to her litter box. She is house trained. My big question, what can I do now to help them get used to each other and get along? And also so important to me, how can I get my cat to, I've had for four years, to love me again? Thank you, said Shalane. Sounds like quite the problem. Shalane, I'm astounded that Dorian would hiss at the veterinarian's office. <laughs> that not only happens to me maybe once an hour. Mm-hmm. So it is a challenge when you take uh, a cat from a single cat household and put it with another cat from a single cat household. And it may be that those cats never really had much experience with other cats uh, or that they had decided that their way went and, and there was no other way of looking at things. Cats being as they are, they are relatively opinionated creatures. So one of the things that we do encounter is when a cat doesn't have the socialization of having learned to interact with other cats and grown up with other cats, um, it can be quite a challenge. Probably, I think as a, as a brand new veterinarian, it was my opinion that all cats would eventually acclimatize themselves to being in a group home. And unfortunately, sometimes that is not the case. However, I certainly wouldn't give up with just one day of a bad experience. One, a few things that I counsel people to do. One, try and expose the cats to each other in, in a situation where they can't have physical contact. So I've had people um, put, put uh, the, the new cat in a carrier uh, and let the other cat come around and sniff. Now that can be quite intimidating to the new cat. If you can put a barrier between them like uh, a baby gate that they can't get over or through, that's a nice way to start that introduction. Very commonly, even just a closed door between cats, they will sniff, they will smell, they'll know there's another cat on the other side of the door. Other things that I am quite a fan of, uh, there is an interesting product called Feel Away. Feel Away is a, an a synthetic analog of a feline facial pheromone. You may have seen cats rubbing their faces against the corner of something and marking. Cats have scent glands in their chins and along the side of their face. And 
some intelligent researcher discovered that those uh, scent glands, those pheromones that are produced, uh, can have a calming effect and can reduce a lot of um, territorial aggression and intercat aggression. And so feel away is an interesting option. It comes in different forms. There is a spray form that's just a little pump sprayer. That's probably more pertinent for cats that are having inappropriate urine marking behaviors. With the spray, you would go around and spray each spot that the cat is inappropriately marking. And over time, it diminishes, I think the research says, 80 to 90% decrease in those marking behaviors. Um, for for a cat aggression or just trying to acclimatize cats to each other, there is also a feel-away diffuser. It looks like one of those little Glade plug-ins that you plug in. It's got a, a fluid reservoir with a wick, and it diffuses this scent um, into the air. One diffuser will cover about 100 square feet, so a, a smallish room. It's an, and, and it can be quite helpful. We use it in our kennel quite frequently. When we have a cat come in that is very stressed, we will spray feel away in the, in the cage they're going in and let them sit there and inhale that for a few minutes. It does tend to calm them down. There is also a feel away collar uh, that can be helpful as well. So it's a nice non-drug method of trying to calm cats down. It, it won't work for the completely wound up cat. It's better to use it in a preventative fashion. There are some other things that are tried. Um, the, probably the very best thing is gradual acclimatization to the other cat. We can, in, in certain situations, use medical therapy, um, kitty Prozac, so to speak, or Valium, those sorts of things can take the edge off enough that cats can start to get used to each other and then you can gradually withdraw the drug over time. Uh, there are some other interesting products. There's a product called Zilkine. I'm not, it's so new, I'm not entirely sure that that is labeled for cats. It is an interesting product. It's a milk protein uh, derived from hydrolyzed casein and it has a calming effect in dogs with phobias. Um, you have to give it for multiple days ahead of time. It builds up in their system. But I'm quite interested to see this year how that's going to work with the fireworks mm -hmm. or dogs that have thunderstorm oh, yes. phobias. Yeah, that, that would be a problem. Hopefully those are some helpful ideas, uh, Shalane, and, and good luck with uh, Dorian and Kitty. And uh, for the questions, of course, you can, you can contact uh, Mountain View uh, for, for more information there. We just have a minute left. I just, I'll just have uh, time for us to read this next comment. Dr. Israelson, and, uh, and then we'll uh, refer further questions, I guess, to uh, the people who can call Mountain View Veterinary uh, Health Center. Uh, Eve says, just a comment about the acupuncture treatment. You, you mentioned that your wife does acupuncture. Correct. Right? Yes. Uh, my large dog had the CCL a surgical treatment in Boise, but the leg was still lame. Dr. Israelson recommended that we try acupuncture on him. I was skeptical, but allowed the treatments to proceed. My dog is now 100% on his leg, and I'm now a believer. So there's a there's a plug for the for the acupuncture. The big treatment. golden retriever called Indiana. Yeah, very nice. Thanks for that, Eve, and uh, thank you, Dr. Rizelson, Dr. Rizelson uh, with uh, Mountain View Veterinary Health Center. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's fun have, being here, and I hope you'll join us uh, tomorrow for Access Utah. I'm uh, Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Deseret News columnist Steve Eaton.
I'm grateful today that I do not face the threat of Mongolian death worms. I was left at home with a television the other day, and I asked it to record a series of disaster movies on the Sci-Fi Channel. I've always been drawn to disaster movies, and I'm not sure why. It may be because I instinctively know that if a giant crack opened across the United States that unleashed an electrical monster from another dimension, I might not have to go to work. In the olden days, when I was a reporter, this was a hope I could have never had. In the news business, if there's a huge calamity in the works, that doesn't mean you get to stay at home, but rather you're expected to go get in the middle of it. That's why, for example, you see so many reporters hanging around the presidential candidates all the time. A bad snowstorm or hail the size of tennis balls is a call to action. This is Steve Eaton reporting from West Valley City where there are giant hail balls falling. Ow! Dang it! That was the size of a tennis ball! I think the Sci-Fi Channel has come up with a low-budget formula for reaching out to people like me. They probably hired one guy who works in a cubicle day and night to churn out special effects showing famous landmarks being destroyed and then they hire three or four main characters for each movie to focus on, and they're done. What about the script, you ask? Wouldn't they have to pay somebody to draft dialogue? Nope. They use pretty much the same script for every movie. You start the show with an earthquake or a sudden 435-mile-per-hour windstorm, and then you go to the scientific experts. They don't know anything. But there's this one guy who might have an answer for the freakish turn of events, they tell the president. The guy with the crazy theories that they threw out of the lab two months ago because he was always predicting the world would end up in a sci-fi movie. They send government agents in black suits to some remote location to forcefully bring that guy in. Sometimes it's a woman. And then the formerly shunned scientist explains his or her theories, which are promptly dismissed as nonsense. The fact that San Francisco is now rubble, they say, is no reason to cause panic and does not mean they are in a low-budget disaster movie. Then... More stuff gets destroyed. People run around screaming. And just when it looks like the world is about to be annihilated, they call in the offbeat scientist back. And he tells them they need to nuke something. I'm guessing that some nuclear bomb maker funds these films because in every movie, they save the world by nuking it. Last night I couldn't sleep. So I got up and I started watching a movie about an ice age that descends on North America in one afternoon for unexplained reasons. I went to bed before I found out the cause of this ice movement, but from past experience, I know it's usually caused by a single military bad guy who's running an evil secret experiment. He will eventually meet a violent death, and there will be lots of screaming, but he'll deserve it. The Ice Age movie I was watching last night was pretty unrealistic. It was set in Maine, and this giant glacier was slowly moving across the state. Huge chunks of ice the size of Donald Trump were falling from the sky, and massive traffic accidents were blocking the roads and people were panicking. Now, I lived in Maine for 10 years, and I happen to know that a few glaciers, ice hurricanes, and cars crashing would not produce a panic. If you couldn't get to the airport because a glacier was blocking the road, they would just say, well, you can't get there from here, dear. Just before I went to bed, they were talking about nuking the fast-moving glacier, so I suspect everything will be okay by the end of the movie. I went back to sleep and dreamt I was a reporter who witnessed from afar a sudden explosion of death worms flying from a campaign rally. Of course, I was obligated to go report on it, even though there was no transportation available. I spent the rest of the dream frustrated because I couldn't find a way to get near the campaign stop and because I couldn't find a bathroom. Not finding a bathroom eventually seems to be a part of every dream I have.
Oh my gosh, Bigfoot is mad. He's coming right for me. I hope I can find a restroom. So now I'm awake and there are no Mongolian deathworms or any that I can see in the house. No looming disasters unless you listen to the Tea Party. And no more national landmarks being toppled unless you count the fall of Newt Gingrich. A wise man once said, When you wake up in the morning and there are no Mongolian deathworms in the house and the Golden Gate Bridge is still up, count that day as another day of glory and joy. I'm sad because I don't have a good reason to stay home from work, but happy the United States doesn't need to nuke itself to keep itself from cracking wide open. Now, if they would just let me back in the lab. I have to go to the bathroom. This is Steve Eaton. On NPR News, it's all about the story. People can surprise you anytime. The people behind movies, books, and music. Music is like a Rorschach test, you know, when people hear what they want to hear. I'm Arun Roth, the new host of All Things Considered from NPR News, now coming to you every weekend from NPR West in Southern California. Weekend afternoons at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering a ham and cheese demi baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. And Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today. Stay tuned for Living on Earth coming up at 10 o'clock. Thank you.